Hello, guys, and welcome to the Tennis Pal Chronicles. We are the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis, and this is uh, two days after Wimbledon. It's Tuesday, and we just finished the Wimbledon final on Sunday. So, hate to date stamp it, but I just wanted to give you kind of a proximity of where we are to the feeling of <laughs> utter defeat that Roger Federer lost an epic final. And of course, with me is my beautiful co-host, Valerie. How are you, Valerie? Well, as PK and I sit here in our Roger Federer shirts and hats, <laughs> very consoling each other. <laughs> At least they're both black with RFs. That's yes. kind of match. We do. It's like morning we're in, black. We're, we're in matching <laughs> morning uniforms. and uh, it's, a, it's a bittersweet thing, right? It's like uh, he did... So much better than probably anyone thought he would. And he really pushed Djokovic to his absolute limit. But then, like, fell short. So you just can't... I just take no solace in any of it. I'm like, this sucks. This is the worst. Yeah. Yeah, and just to kind of frame my emotion, I mean, I I don't know. I'm sure this is how every... Uh, fan feels when their hero loses. So, for instance, if Djokovic had lost, I'm sure Tanya would just be devastated because she puts all her hopes and her passion into it. And that's, I mean, that's why we love tennis. That's why this show is the podcast to feed your passion, right? Because yes. we are so invested. And so forgive us if we're a little bit biased because we have our favorites, but that's what it's all about. And we hope that you have your favorite. And we hope that you are super into whoever your favorite is. And we, we applaud that passion no matter who your hero is, right? Yes. We are not professional broadcasters. We are obviously do not have <laughs> to um, play it cool and pretend like we don't have a... Yeah, be side. neutral. However, right. we are extreme tennis fans. So even in defeat and our sadness for our favorite player, we're still able to um, logically understand the brilliance of Djokovic that we saw and appreciate it for what it is to tennis. Just unfortunately, it had to be against the person we love. Right. And I, I think it was amazing that he won. I wouldn't call it brilliant. I wouldn't call his well, performance. His performance sucked. But the brilliance <laughs> of it is that he didn't play good. Right. And still found a way to right. win. Right. That's what's brilliant about yeah. it. Is and it like that he did what normally what Roger Federer does to other people. Yeah. And as a tennis player and as a coach, I completely get that because I'm always telling people and myself and people that I'm working with gut it out, find another way to win, get one more ball over the net and in the court, and that's how you win. I mean, that's the game, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what Djokovic did. That's but what Halep did, too. I mean, and all, and for, I mean, she just got every ball back. She and that's did. what Djokovic did. Yeah. You know, just get every ball back. I remember uh, in talking to young tennis players, I would say, you know, 
you can try to copy Rafa because he was so popular during that time. Everybody wanted that whip for him. But I actually told everyone you should copy Ferrer because he was much more consistent, much more equal on his forehand and backhand side. He could get everything back. And so even though he might not have been as talented as Federer or Rafa Nadal, his consistency uh, won him tournaments and awards, and he could hang with the best of the game, you know? Mm -hmm. I guess that makes you feel like um, you have a chance, even if you aren't as talented as the most talented people, because you can actually play. I kind of, I actually think of Andy Murray a little bit like that. I mean, he is incredibly talented in how he reads the game and how he can put the ball back, but really it's his fitness and his ability to get the ball back, which is amazing because he's always been lacking on a second serve and, and even his forehand people have criticized. But I think... Uh, here, here were two incredible players that had completely different styles. I think Federer has the game that just is all about the winner and setting up aggressive play, and Djokovic gets it all back. And um, unfortunately, we felt that <laughs> the person who was the most aggressive maybe didn't win, except the fact that Djokovic was the most aggressive in the most important times. Yeah, actually, there was a few times, and I think even on one of the one of the break points or championship points, um, actually, it wasn't a championship point, but it might have been in the tie break. There was like this couple really important important points where they're rallying, they're rallying, and Federer doesn't take it up the line, and I'm and mm. and I'm I, I could tell he was like trying to set it up for the next shot, right? But it was one shot too late because mm. it was almost like Djokovic knew the same thing I was thinking. Roger's trying to set this shot up. Right. So the next one, I'm going to rip it up the line. And so Djokovic just ripped it up the line first. <laughs> and it was like, oh, Roger, you're just like one shot too late, man. And you telegraphed like, I saw the plan. I saw you trying to pull him out wide on his backhand so that you can rip it up. And you pulled him out wide and he just ripped it up the, the line. I think what was so frustrating watching that match was that Federer really played better than Djokovic throughout the whole match. Five hours plus. Federer's level, his uh, accuracy, his uh, points won. He won uh, 14 points more than Djokovic total mm -hmm. in the match. And yet he didn't walk away with the W. No. Three tiebreakers. There was like five points that decided this match. Yeah. You know, and those five points, Djokovic... Played really well. Um, I think he got a little lucky on that forehand pass on the second championship point, I believe. I, it seemed like a frame to me, but I also thought <laughs> Roger sh didn't hit a good enough approach shot. Right. Um, but I guess nerves do that to you. Yeah, and this was a battle of nerves, wasn't it? It not really was. Not only for... Not only for our heroes on the court, but for all of us, <laughs> because I was on edge the whole time. I was just, I really thought at seven all, right? Uh, Fed had broken. Uh -huh. And I thought, this is it. He's going to serve it out uh, because he's Roger Federer. He has a much better serve, although Djokovic served incredibly well and he had aces in really key moments. But I just, I, I really believe that. Roger believed it was his destiny to win this. Yeah. He was ready. He knew he was going to have it. And in that moment, I think all of Federer fandom was ready to celebrate. 
I was Philip. I had <laughs> a prior engagement, and I was devastated that I made this commitment because I knew it. I was like, I'm gonna have to leave like right in the thick of the end of the match right. and go go figure. I did. So I'm driving on the freeway and I'm I'm I have the my ESPN playing and I'm listening to it and I hear like you know two championship points. Yeah. I swear to God I'm I start tearing up and I'm like <laughs> I'm like I can't believe he's gonna do he's it. He's gonna do it. And and I can't wait to tell the story on the podcast of how I had my moment <laughs> like I'll never forget when he won and I was on the freeway crying by myself. Right. And then five minutes later, I was crying because <laughs> he got <laughs> broke back. And then, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes later, however long it was, um, I was just devastated to see that he just couldn't, I mean, pull it together. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that we're so invested in someone who... Honestly, we don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know this guy. Now you sound like my wife. Uh, I know Roger. Roger knows me. We're great fa- friends, and he wishes me all the best. We're like this. I'm yeah. crossing my fingers, showing Valerie that one finger's over the other. Yeah, yeah I know. I, and uh, it's so funny. On Twitter, I meet so many people who, are, who say to me uh, in a direct message, I'm Roger Federer's number one fan. <laughs> and I've met so many, hundreds, maybe thousands of people who have said that to me. And uh, they all believe it. And I'm sure that every sport uh, and every hero of every sport has thousands of these fans. And that's why sport is so great, right? Yes. It's amazing that we invest so much. We, we invested five hours yeah. plus of our, of our life into this match. And, and years came and off years. my life in stress <laughs> and health as a result. But I can't help but think, like, in all sports... And it was proven this weekend. They the saying is defense wins championships. Mm. I mean, it's kind of a a well known thing for team sports. But you know, I would apply that to Roger too. I think Roger, uh, the reason he was able to hang for five sets was because he played such great defense. I felt like he played the kind of defense he played in 2017 at the Australian Open, where. Rafa was going after him, and Roger would literally kind of lob it back mm-hmm. with a ton of topspin to keep it in. And that maybe is the biggest difference between Federer and Djokovic, where Federer will go for a flat-out shot, winner down the line, smack that ball. Djokovic, <clears throat> on his rally balls, is hitting high, spinny topspins, not as high as Nadal, but clearly in, no chance of it being out. And he gives himself so much margin that even when he feels like he needs to go for bigger and he keeps it deep, it's still really in. He's not creating a ton of errors and just frustrating. Yeah, for us, I guess, but really, you know, fun, I'm sure, for Tanya and my friend <laughs> Nina um, and my friend Walter. <laughs> All of I have our Djokovic few, fans. I have a few Djokovic fans, but um, my friend Matt Lynn. Who oh, loves, Matt! Yeah. Come on, Matt. No, <laughs> <laughs> but Novak. What I always preach to people anytime they talk to me about tennis is, it's so mental. Mm. Most of these guys, on any given day, they all have the skill set. They're sure. all really, really talented and, and exceptional in their abilities. But it's what lies between the ears that always makes the difference. 
and what lies between the big three, Roger, Rafa, and Djokovic. They have something special in their mind and their belief, and that's how they, they are able to dominate so much. But you can still see them lose on a day where someone else is just better, but for the most part, they always believe that they're going to win. And um, I don't know if you saw Roger's press conference in the semifinals, I think. Um, they asked him if he had advice for Osaka. I'm sorry. What am I talking about, Osaka? She went out in the first round. Akoka. Um, no, um, for, for Simona Halep. Oh. Because she's a big fan of Roger. And um, they said, oh, Halep's a, a big fan of yours. Do you have any advice? And what he said was, you know, believe. Don't just go in there and be happy to, to be in the final. Mm. Like, you really need to believe that you can win. Mm. And he was giving all this advice, and I'm thinking, does he know he's giving him, like, it's the same speech he needs to give himself that he needs to go in there and really believe that he could do it. And part of me thinks he did take his own advice because after being down championship point, being down the first set, being all these, you know, obstacles he had and he just still kept fighting and fighting. Yeah. But then, like you said, and we already discussed, like, the the important moments, he couldn't raise his mental game. I mean, he made poor decisions, bad approach shots, um, mistiming uh, for, forehands. His forehand went astray a couple times. Um, and I saw one of your stats, which I didn't know until today, tie break, unforced errors, Federer 11, Djokovic 0. Yeah, that was the, prop, the most dominant statistic that changed the game mm-hmm. was that they – pretty much played even all the way through all of the games in all of the sets. But in tie break, uh, Federer (laughs) created 11 unforced errors and Djokovic zero. So how can you win if your opponent creates zero unforced errors? And and like you said, that is such a mental step up for Djokovic, who is playing on and off, hot and cold, uh, really struggling, hitting some amazing shots and then some really strange shots and serving fairly poorly at times. Uh, it seemed like he was really struggling on his serve as well. And he kept, you know, hitting his racket with his palm as they do to test the strings and mm-hmm. changed rackets multiple times. And you just felt like he was not feeling it. But when he needed to, he could raise his level uh, just enough so that he didn't create an error. And maybe that's not even raising his level for Djokovic because, as we said, that is what Djokovic is. He can get the ball back. He can move better than everyone else and just be in the right place to just do enough to get it back. Where for Federer, he feels so much more pressure to out-hit Djokovic, to win the point, to go for more, and, of course, that creates the error. Exactly. I mean, that is exactly it, right? The reason Federer had the errors is because Djokovic shrinks the court and makes you feel you have to go for it. Yeah. So, uh, and a high, I mean, higher risk shots. Yeah. But that's the thing is, uh, if this was a mere mortal, then of course it would have been a no match like Batista Agud, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, at least, you know, um, T got a set off of him, but it never, you never felt like, uh, Djokovic was in trouble. In this match against Federer, he was in trouble. Yes. He had every moment to lose, and he, and yet he was struggling. Uh, he really had a hard time in moments. 
and maybe even the second set kind of gave the set away just oh, to recover. Yeah. I'm okay. It was like a flippy flop of the semifinal with Rafa, right? Where Roger lost the tiebreak, and then, um, I'm sorry, he won Roger the tiebreak. Won the tiebreak. Won the tiebreak against Nadal. And then people said he kind of like gave up in the second. I didn't see him giving up the that much. He definitely wasn't trying as hard. But he didn't look like he was totally tanking it. But to me, Djokovic looked like he totally tanked the second right. set. At once he was down three love, I think. Right. He three just love. like went away and was like, whatever. Well, I don't know if Federer was just covering for himself, but he did say in the press conference that he was on the wrong side of the court, that the sun was hitting at that certain time. There was a lot of shade, and he was having a harder time with the ball. Mm -hmm. So he at least had a reasonable explanation for what happened in that second set. <clears throat> you don't think of Federer as someone who gives a set away, that he keeps trying. But definitely towards the end of that second set with Rafa Nadal, you felt like he was just kind of flippant. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I don't think it was like a Nick Kyrgios kind of tank. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah, you definitely felt like um, he knew the set was lost at that point and made a tactical decision. Whereas I think for Djokovic, it felt like from the very beginning, and I'm not sure if that was just a low energy level, and that's something you don't think of with Novak, you don't think that he's going to even have a low energy level mm -hmm. because of who he is, the Superman, the gluten-free, <laughs> health freak that he is. You just think he's going to have boundless energy. Uh, but it seemed like he was struggling. Yeah. I mean, it, the moment was probably something nerves played probably for both of them. But again, I mean, just kudos to him. <clears throat> kudos to him for making it happen, you know. Um, I, f I often feel bad for Djokovic. For me, I'm, I'm a big fan of his game and him as a person. He's an awesome person. Uh, I didn't like him when he first came out. Uh, he had a lot of controversial comments about Rafa and Roger that, you know, just rubbed me the wrong way. But as he's grown up and matured and he's just really grown into himself as a man and into the sport as such a great player, um, an ambassador for the game, I really have grown to appreciate him uh, for what he brings. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him in that sense. Um, it's really cool to see. It's, it's terrifying, though, as a Federer fan to know that he's 32. Roger just inspired him to play five to six more years. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, he can, he can win, he like, press conference, yeah. 10 more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He can get to 30 in my mind. I'm like, if, if he just stays healthy, I don't see why he couldn't. I mean, I'm sure Sitsipas and maybe only Sitsipas at this moment has something to say about that. But it, I can't wait to see how it all unfolds. Of course, as a Roger fan, I'm terrified who's going to catch Roger. But, I mean, at this point, it just seems inevitable. So might as well just enjoy it while it lasts. Well, and that does speak to the fact that so many of the young guns just could not compete at all at Wimbledon. It was very strange how many of them went out early and how clearly Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal are five steps ahead. Not even within the same game. It just felt like uh, they weren't even challenged, even a little bored, mm -hmm. until they got to the place where they really had to fight each other. Uh, I thought the Fed Nadal match was was beautiful. I think it was 
Federer showing that he was ready for the final. Mm -hmm. He really stepped up. Uh, I think it was probably one of the most satisfying matches that he's ever played because uh, he actually said um, that he enjoyed this and he's going to remember this for a very long time. So that was really exciting to see. And um, sorry, apologies to all the Nadal fans, but Nadal played an incredible grass court tournament and really just took anyone out in his path that wasn't Federer or Djokovic. Yeah. It's it's weird. I hate having the three. Djokovic has earned a spot at number one. He deserves it. So he deserves to be the defending person who just sits and waits for these two guys to take one or the other out, and then he, he just gets to play only one of them. But these two guys now, for probably the rest of their careers, are going to have to go through each other and Djokovic. Unless one of them slips, maybe Federer as he gets older will start going down and he might end up on the other side of a draw. But um, I feel like Federer is going to be the one who's going to end up having to play both of them for the rest of his career unless there's an injury and changes seating. But, um, but, um, that was a funny, (laughs) (laughs) but don't, um, I mean, on the upside, though, everyone said there's no way Federer is winning because he has never beaten Nadal and Djokovic in the same tournament. That's never happened in history. Still. Still, (laughs) unfortunately, I know. Tears. I need to put, like, crying sound effects in the background. Yeah. Uh, But he was right there. He could have done it. had two match points. So the fact that he he didn't, obviously, I understand, but – he could have, and he w- he would have. He played better than Djokovic. I just feel like that was so encouraging yeah. that he can. He actually could do what everyone said he couldn't. Exactly. Everyone five also hours, well, uh, five hours sustained pressure. He had he did at a higher level everyone. of tennis than Djokovic. Yeah, more points. Let, let, let me read some of these statistics because I think it's just amazing. Uh, total points won. Roger Federer won 218 to Novak's 204. Total points won. Winners and unforced errors. Roger had 94 to 64 versus Novak's 54 to 52. That's like a plus 30 over a plus two. That's that's a big difference. So many more winners. Just mm-hmm. insane how many winners Roger hit. And that's his game. Uh Breakpoints faced in the first four sets. Roger had two, both in the fourth set. Novak had eight. So Roger had so many more chances. Um, of course, he's notoriously famous for not taking yeah. those breakpoints. Yeah. But I even thought he did better about taking those breakpoints in this match than usual. Well, I think he, for my experience and memory as a fan who watches him, it's generally with Nadal. Where he has the, you know, he has thirty break points and he doesn't convert one. <laughs> Everyone else, I feel like uh, he has a normal, an average amount of con- conversions. But you know what? What I was gonna, what I was gonna say, I kind of lost my train of thought. I got all off on a tangent, mm. and then I was like, "Where the hell was I?" Is how because there's only the, really the three of them, and so you know you're only gonna get, you know, one or the other in the final. I mean, it is what it is, but I think it would just be so fun to, to have them have to all play each other, like somehow. like Right, like a round-robin kind of Yeah, format. like a mm-hmm. round-robin final where, mm-hmm. so you get them all having to play each other a bunch of times to determine the real champion. 
I don't know. Maybe I just want to see them play each other a lot. Well, and I think the sad thing is that this was Federer's favorite surface. If he had the best possible chance of surface with Rafa, of course, on clay and Roger on grass, you felt like this was his best chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what makes it so painful is that he's old. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's old in terms of relatively you know, speaking yeah as far as his competitors right and um and yeah i mean how many chances are going to come by like this and how many how many days are you going to meet djokovic in a final where he's not on his game mm -hmm. i mean he pretty much it's like djokovic <clears throat> tried to hand it to him on a platter and mm -hmm. he still couldn't take it but then but then like every time he would give it to him you know roger would I don't know. Maybe Djokovic just took it back real quick, hmm. like playing with him, like hmm. teasing him. No. I think it's something about uh, Djokovic's incredible personality that helps him rise to a challenge, um, especially like a negative challenge. If he's really threatened, if he's really uh, put in a hard place, he actually hits out harder, which mm -hmm. is crazy. I mean, who can do that? Everyone else tightens up tenses up and is more afraid but somehow that fear drives Novak to hit stronger I noticed that his forehand was getting better and better in the fifth set than it was in previous sets when there was more pressure and let's not kid ourselves this match was only about pressure mm -hmm. because really both of them were missing <laughs> horrendous shots at times <laughs> which you know were super easy I mean I remember one time Roger I just had a super easy put away, uh, taking it out of the air, which for us mere mortals, that's a really hard shot. Uh, hit it out long, very simple. And there were a few shots where you just felt like, oh my gosh, how could he miss that? How, how he missed that was the pressure that he felt on both sides. They both felt a lot of pressure. And I, we need to get a doctor of, uh, of mental toughness in here <laughs> and do a, an interview because it's just staggering to be able to rise to the occasion in a tough moment like that. Heck yeah. And you know, um, also what is so impressive and it must just be part of his, his DNA. I mean, cause Djokovic did really come in as the third wheel Yeah. after, you know, there was a tennis world. Federer was like the beloved and then Nadal comes in and anyone who just didn't want Federer or wanted to root for the underdog rooted for Rafa, and then so the tennis world was split. And then here comes Djokovic, and everyone's already on a side, right? So he's just kind of like this third wheel. Uh, he has a chip on his shoulder because of it, because he, he very frequently doesn't get the love that he deserves or that the other players get. He is almost never the favorite as far as a crowd favorite. He's mm -hmm. always the favorite to win. Oh He's gosh, never the this crowd, crowd was, was cheering for every point that Federer was hitting. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's crazy. So like, I imagine like how hard that is. Like he didn't just beat Roger on Sunday. He beat 30,000 people, right? In the stands or whatever. I mean, it just must be really, he just must have some crazy resolve inside to be able to handle all of that. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's part of his DNA and who he is. I think is so. That mm -hmm. He needs to have that adversity and, and those challenges to motivate him. If 
I honestly think like if people were rooting for him, he might not have had that like, I'll show you. Mm, he'd be a lot more relaxed. He wouldn't have as much energy maybe. Yeah. Hard to know. We'll never know. Right? <laughs> All speculation. It is fun to talk about, but it definitely is him rising up to the most important moments and hanging tough. And that maybe also speaks to his technical game as well. As I was saying, he doesn't have to go for big. He just has to be who he is in those moments and he wins. And I think Federer used to be that. That's that's the point was that pre-2009, pre-losing to Del Potro, he was that person who always rose to the occasion, always can hit an ace on a break point, and mm-hmm. always pull out tie breaks. And I think there was a crazy stat about tie breaks. Let me see if I wrote that down. Yeah, the stat is that uh, Federer is now three of nine at tie breaks in slam finals in the last 10 years since that 2009 U.S. Open loss to Del Potro. And, of course, three of those tie breaks were the ones that he lost here at Wimbledon. So prior to that, prior to 2009, he was so dominant that he was 18 and three in tie breaks. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he recently in an interview, oh, that wasn't an interview. There's this awesome YouTube uh, channel that's called like 73 Questions. I Mm -hmm. think it might be a Vogue thing. Oh, that was Vogue, yeah. Okay. And they asked if he could have any match back. Mm -hmm. What would it be in that? Was it Del Potro? Mm. 2009 final. Mm. Although I'd say that one, I mean, I wanted that one back too. That one was like my first real heartbreak. Um, but also the U.S. Open that he lost to the semifinal or to Djokovic in to the Djokovic. semifinals mm-hmm. with that return winner. Mm-hmm. And then this one's right up there. I mean, it's almost like everyone was thinking when he was up championship point and Djokovic is hitting, hit that forehand and hit the other return. You know, you're just, everyone's thinking like, oh my God, this is the U.S. Open. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure they thought about it yeah. on court. <clears throat> yeah. So depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is depressing, but it's also like uh, it's depressing. Honestly, I I like try and put it out of my mind because I don't even want to think about it because it was it would have been twenty one mm-hmm. to fifteen, uh, sixteen for Djokovic and eighteen for Nadal, right? Oh, okay. Is Djokovic already at sixteen? Which means he he just got to seventeen. Let's take a look. I think Djokovic just got to 16. Just got to 16. Okay, so it would have been 15 to 21. So Djokovic would have had to win seven to overtake him. But now it's 16-20, and he only has to win four to tie, five to take over. I mean, it's a big swing. And we're he's still, only two behind it all now. Yeah. He's, he's going to win the pro- probably the U.S. Open and... And the Australian Open, he could be tied. They could play a final at the French Open to be to get to 19, to see who could get to 19 first. That's going to be epic. Yeah, he's at 16 now. That's crazy. This is 16, the first time I had that thought. Now I'm kind of like, well, of course I want Roger to win the U.S. Open. <laughs> I also want 
the tennis tour to speed up some courts? Like what happened to fast courts? <clears throat> right. Slowing everything down really doesn't help Fetter. I mean, the more it slows down, the more they're just taking all his opportunities away. Um, and it just falls into the favor of Djokovic and Nadal, right? Um, I feel like actually if courts were a little faster, Roger prob- probably would already have a couple more. Um, but you can't do anything to change that. But having that thought now that if Djokovic wins the U.S. Open and then the Australian Open, not only is he going for another year calendar slam against Nadal in the final if they both make it in, at the French Open, but they're also playing for the Grand Slam record and to be one behind Roger. Oh, my God. The next one year is going to be really super exciting. Yeah, and we're also moving into this era of tennis where the greats are only really focused on slams. They're all really, including Serena. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like these people are just gearing up and trying to hit their highest peak at a slam, which, of course, makes total strategic sense. But it, it changes the the layout of what tennis was and is going to become, right? Because now it's just about getting that major trophy and the rest of tennis going all the way down to the 250s and the challengers and all the way down. It becomes really just about peaking to get the trophy Mm -hmm. rather than being consistent, winning, being dominant, playing against the field, which I think Federer used to be. And maybe I'm delirious. And if Federer was just a little bit younger, I really do believe that he is so talented and so good at tennis that he would figure Djokovic out because I feel like that's what happened with Nadal. He was against down, what, 26-10? What, what is their head-to-head now? Well, they've played 40. <clears throat> but I don't generally count any of their clay as, <laughs> as part of the head-to-head because I don't think Roger does either. You just have to know that you're probably never going to beat him on clay. Right. And don't don't even... You can try, right? It's a fun task to attempt. But yeah. And he did play incredibly well against him on clay for not having played three years, yeah. which is... And for the conditions that were heavily in favor of Nadal. Sure. But, I mean, even, even if they were favorable, I mean, what was he going to do? Take a set, maybe? Right. So if you remove clay from at least that last <coughs> at least the last rolling garris if you remove that then now fetter has beat him six times off of clay and you i really feel like he has changed his game enough to overcome his arch rival mm-hmm. and that's that's stunning that he could ha- continue to evolve his game and become a better tennis player to beat even one of the greatest and i feel like if he had more time He's going to walk away from this with his team and really figure this out. How can I? Because that's who he is. That's Mm -hmm. his DNA. He's always improving. He's always working hard. He's always strategic. And he has such crazy talent. So you put together the talent and the hard work and you get Roger Federer, which is. And you hope that, that he would be able to strategically find a way. The problem for Roger is that like Djokovic has to play against a crowd, Roger is playing against Father Time. Right. And he's playing someone who's at their absolute peak, right? Or Roger's not at his peak. Right. He's just that brilliant and amazing that he's still making these guys fight for it. But, I mean, really, he's like, 
probably halfway down, more than halfway down the hill of physical of peakness. Phys- yeah, I yeah. mean, he he's already gone up, hit the peak, and he's like down. Um, I don't I don't know about that because. You know, obviously his dominant years were 2006, 2007, uh, when he had the best record in tennis as win-to-loss ratios. <clears throat> but I don't feel like Nadal and Djokovic were alive as dominant forces at that time yet. They weren't, no. So when they became more and more dominant, I just feel like they pushed the game of tennis farther and farther and farther until all of them had to push each other. I really feel like Federer must be playing better tennis than he was previously because he's beating better players. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but well, it I just seems like... Well, I think he definitely like... has to raise his level when he plays them. Yes. But he still has, to, in my opinion, more surprise losses to people he shouldn't be losing to. Mm. Well, I don't know how that really correlates to what you're saying because you have you make a good point <laughs> <laughs> i mean just the fact that he can raise his level to play the highest level of tennis five sets against Djokovic, yeah uh to to be able to beat rafa at wimbledon when i feel like you know everyone was saying this is a rematch of 2008 and you know <clears throat> And it also speaks to Rafa being able to look at his serve. His serve was so improved mm-hmm. at Wimbledon. It was really impressive how evolved these guys are becoming. And I think in because they're challenging each other so much, their game is raised, and that just sets them so far apart from the rest of the field. Nobody else is close. Yeah. They, they asked um, Rafa in his press conference about him getting like all of them getting better and mm-hmm. as they age and improving. And he was like, no, I don't know. He was saying something about, no, I don't believe it. But then the guy's like, Rafa, your serve is like way better than it was <laughs> 10 years ago. You're like, how can you deny that? And he's like, okay, yeah. But uh, they have improved their shots. But it is funny if you have if have a chance to uh, look up Rafa's semifinal. There's a great, there's like a Wimbledon YouTube channel that you can go check out and uh, see all the press conferences. And they put the full press conference, which is so cool. Yeah. A lot of the slams don't do that. Mm. Um, so I, I was really appreciative of that. Um, but it, it was fun to watch Rafa. I guess he had a lot of actually really funny press conferences, mm. some one liners that may live on forever. But uh, anywho, they, to your point, they are all improving. One of my favorite parts of uh, the press conference was when they were talking about whether the women should be on center court versus Rafa. And uh, I think it was, I think they were talking about Simona Halep. Uh, and no, am I, am I talking about this right? Uh, they were talking about a woman being on center court versus Rafa. And, uh, and Rafa said, well, I, I have 18 Grand Slams, so I don't feel less important. <laughs> I feel more important, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so he really shut that uh, question down with the fact that he had to remind them how important he was. Nice. Yeah. He did it really well, though. <laughs> it was awesome. I wonder how I missed that one. I don't, I don't know if I... I don't actually think I watched any of his press conferences except for the one before and after the Federer match. So. Yeah. I'm fed heavy. I know. I watched way too much. Just like uh, the <laughs> Roland Garros, I watched so much tennis. 
it was it was really an interesting Wimbledon because didn't you feel like there was a tremendous amount of energy on one day and then the next day was yeah. a little bit low? So the scheduling was really strange where it felt like whoever got the tickets on those... <laughs> the every other day. The every other day would actually see like Federer and Nadal play at the same time and just had these incredible matches. Not Even if it wasn't Federer and Nadal, it was, again, other matches that were great like Coco and Venus and Serena. And I don't know, do you want to talk about Serena too? Because I, when we're talking about pressure at the Grand Slams, I you have to bring up Serena, right? Yeah. I mean, well, she was going for more history than anyone else, really. Yeah. I mean, I guess then Roger breaking his own record, but I guess nobody really thought he was going to do that. And everyone kind of thought Serena had a great chance. Yeah. Um, talk about just not your day. Right. I mean, Hallett played the match of her life. And she said that, didn't she? She said, this was the best tennis I've ever played. Yeah. And it was, I mean, as a Serena fan, I like Halep too. So it's helpful to lose to someone who you also like. Um, a little less depressing. Um, but it was it was fascinating to watch. While it, on the one hand, it was slightly boring, I guess, for lack of a better word, the scoreline and the fact that it was never really that interesting um, or close. But watching Halep just fly around that court like nothing and just hit all those shots was was fun. It was fun to watch her be so amazing. Um, it almost was, to me, like reminiscent of like how Osaka just was like getting every ball and like hitting all these awesome shots mm -hmm. at the U.S. Open. Um, it was it was cool. I, I was glad for, for Halep to get a second. I, I would have been she's sad so if she nice. was only a one-hit wonder. Yeah. So I hope she can... I mean, obviously, I'd love to see Serena get to 24 because that would just be cool. Um, but, yeah, I hope that Halep wins more. Yeah, she seemed like she really upped her game throughout the whole tournament. She was kind of under the radar. Like, nobody really, like, was watching her. They were mm -hmm. talking about Coco. They were talking about Serena. They were even talking about Petra. Yeah. <clears throat> All the big hitters. Mm -hmm. But here again is a person who can physically chase every ball down and get it back with a little bit of spit, you know? Yeah. And, uh, wow, she was hitting the ball so well, actually taking the ball early, and she talked about how she never really liked grass, but this year she was excited to come back to grass. She felt like she could play better, and uh, she seemed so happy. It just made me feel good yeah. to see her play so well and be so happy, and even when she was meeting the duchess mm -hmm. and the royal box and how cute and happy she was. Yeah. yeah. When she had her little all, all members pass or whatever it's called, you know, <laughs> on her jacket, she was so cute. She was so proud of that. She was so proud. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, what a clean ball striker she is. And she could just be in the right place and hit the ball. And, uh, yeah. And you felt like Serena just felt too much pressure. Her serve was not where it needed to be. Yeah, because Halep was returning her serve ridiculously well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have to imagine that maybe Serena wasn't hitting spots as, as much as she maybe wanted to. Yeah. We need to have someone come on and talk about pressure because I feel like that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. How, how to handle pressure, how to be able to rise to the occasion or maybe even stay calm. How do you stay loose? Well, we should ask 
Djokovic to come on the show because he was talking all about how he was just calm the whole time, and that's what helped him win. But so Djokovic, if you're listening, no, because <laughs> I know, I know that you just love to uh, with your free time listen to amateur podcasts of, of Roger Federer fans. Um, we'll take Marion too if Marion, his coach, wants oh, to come yes. on. Wow, that I would mean, be fun. Or Talk his about wife. coach of the century, right? I yeah, mean, huge comeback. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I was thinking while you were talking about Halep flying around the court and how, yeah, I mean, it's basically these these two brick walls that won the championship. And I think the only reason that's possible to have a defensive counterpuncher, whatever, a baseliner win is because they slowed the court down. Mm. I mean... Five years ago, Halep probably isn't beating Serena, not just because of age, but because her serves are going to fly. Her forehands are going to fly. There's just not as much time to get to balls. And now the more they slow slow it down, of course, um, all those normal people were used to favoriting. The Rayonich, the Isner, the Federer, the Kevin Anderson, whoever's got these big, powerful... Strokes, Petra Kvitova, Serena Williams, um, your girl. Anisimova? Oh, Anisimova too, but I was talking about your other girl. Um, Sabalenka. <laughs> Man, do I, my, my three strikes are out. <laughs> Last one. Uh, Who's your, Pliskova. Pliskova. Um, Biggest server. Yeah, I mean, she, she really should have a game that matches up quite well on grass. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I, I just think it's like when you slow down the courts, it just hurts that type of player. It's almost like tennis is moving in the direction where you really have to be a baseliner to succeed year round. It'd be interesting to talk to some elite level coaches and hear how are they training students so that they can play on slower courts? What are the advantages um, how do you keep the ball going? And I got to think that fitness is a huge, huge part of it because it just means longer rallies. It means getting to the ball, being more in the moment and lasting. But again, Roger had so many uh, long rallies that he won against Djokovic. He did. I was so proud of him. So proud. Wait, and against Nadal too. I mean, and against Nadal. Honestly, in his career, I don't know that I can even remember him being that confident yeah. to just sit there and be like, I'll rally with you. Right. Let's go, right? Yeah. I and mean, he was, was top nice to spinning see. it back, keeping it in, being defensive, waiting for his shot. Yeah, it was really impressive. I have a question for you because we we didn't touch up on the fact that this was the first um, year that they brought in the tiebreak. And on the first year, the eve of the tiebreak in the fifth set, um, not one match had it, but then the final had it. <laughs> and Djokovic even had to ask, like, when does the tiebreak come? And right. he wasn't sure. And I even, in my mind, when I was looking at the score, I didn't think he won at seven because I was watching it without sound. And I thought it had to go to 10, like, um, is it Australian? The Australian Open, the, who just, um, one of the tournaments just adapted on the fifth set, having a tiebreak, but it goes to 10 points instead of seven. Oh, yeah, that's Australian Open. Okay, mm-hmm. so I was 
listening to the, or I was watching the match on mute because I was cheating. I was in a situation where I wasn't supposed to be watching the match. <laughs> so I'm watching it. And when because it got to you seven, have passion for tennis. And there's a check mark by Djokovic's name. I'm like, oh man, what the hell? I thought I, I thought we had to go to ten. <laughs> but uh, so, what did you think of that? The how did that new change go over for you? Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I look back and I think, well, Federer probably could have won if it didn't go to a tiebreak because I felt like Djokovic was dominant in tiebreaks, but not dominant in games. He was actually both of them after seven, eight, nine, and ten. They were really fighting to hold games. They were fighting against each other, but I felt like because of the stats, we see Federer was playing better even in the fifth set. Uh, so, you know, spilt milk. You, f I just believe that if it had not gone to a tie break at twelve all, that he, Federer, would have pulled it through. But. Uh, I think he's just a slower burner, you know. He just it takes him time, and he would have figured it out. I just think, or he would have got tired, and the endless engine of Djokovic, the cyborg, would have just kept going. Yeah, I felt I, I feel <laughs> like that would have been more epic than to than as a Federer fan, the disappointing tiebreak. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to have seen Roger lose in that way rather than in a disappointing tiebreak because. Yeah, unfortunately, just felt like no contest in the tiebreak. Yeah. I mean, at 7-3, I didn't, I mean, I was very distracted when the tiebreak came because I was supposed to be uh, highly concentrated on another task. Um, is 7-3 was only one mini break, right? Or was it two? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I feel like it was only, you know, a one or two point difference. But it sucks, yeah, when you're watching a tiebreak and only one or two points makes the difference. That's what's so great about breaking a player is that you have to prove it, the deuce, the advantage, and then, like, the prove it point. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, you won one point, but can you win two points in a row right. and really take this game? Right. It's kind of, I don't know, one of the cool things about tennis. <laughs> well, I think we've talked enough. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty pretty sure that nobody wants to hear anything else <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Although, you know, another another stat that rings out, that a bad one that I don't want to save. Mm. I mean, but kudos again to Djokovic. And Roger, poor Roger being on the wrong side of history so many times. Um, 71 years it had been since someone faced championship point at Wimbledon and, and came back and won. Oh, wow. 71 years? Is yeah. that right? Wow. Hmm. So... Uh, and he faced two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I can't imagine being Roger Federer after a loss like that. I When I lose, just in my humble little matches, <laughs> I relive it and I think about those points. And, you know, at 7-all, you got to think he's serving out. The first forehand should have, if it had gone in, uh, it would have been a clean winner because mm -hmm. Djokovic was not there. It was mm -hmm. a little bit wide. Uh, he, it seemed like Federer was just a little off balance when he hit that shot. Yeah. Well, it was a good return. It was a it was good like return. It was like right at his feet. And so Fed had the plan in his mind. He knew he's going to do the one-two, but he just wasn't in the right place at that moment. And then the second point, you know, I think it's the right thing. He charges the net, you know. Um, he thinks he's going to get it. 
maybe just that the approach wasn't good enough and Djokovic had an amazing cross court mm-hmm. and probably gave him a ton of confidence. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it did. But he still had chances. It was still 40 all. And, yeah. Ah, my gosh. What a crazy match. Crazy. I, I mean, I think that in his, Roger's press ca- conference after the match, they asked him, like, what it's like to be, like, part of the 2008 and, and now this 2019 final and these epic, like, the most epic Wimbledon finals ever. And he's like, well, the only thing that they have in common is is that I'm the loser. Right. It was like the saddest. <laughs> it was like the saddest thing for a Federer fan. Anyway, I'm sure there's. I mean, I have friends who don't like Roger, and they are probably taking great pleasure out of this moment. But whatever. They're they just don't know how to be proper tennis fans. Apparently, <laughs> I think this one hurts him a lot. I really do. I think he he's going to be feeling this one. But I do have to say that one of the great role models that Roger Federer provides for us is that he is able to pick himself up and brush off losses fairly quickly. And I don't know him. I don't talk to him on the phone. But I do see that when he loses, and I'm still devastated in my heart, I can't even talk on Twitter. I can't even, <laughs> like, sign in and watch, you know, Google News because all the tennis feeds are talking about the opponent winning. You sometimes see Roger playing with the kids or you see him you know, out to dinner with his family and he just looks happy and that's just so encouraging. And you think, well, that's another mark of a champion that you're able to just keep moving forward, keep looking ahead. And, and that's, I guess, what we have to do here at the Tennis Podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of all how many Nadal fans that are feeling the same devastation that we are. Um, but you know what other cool stat I heard on the Tennis Podcast? Uh, Matt... Because Matt from the tennis podcast the is a guy. His stats guy, but he's also a Fed, Fed fan. Oh, is he? Yeah. I, I've never felt that. Oh, yeah. No, they, they, they talk about it, and, and he's quite open about it. But um, so he said he, he was at the press conference, mm-hmm. and um, someone had brought something up about the 2000. I think it was the question I just talked about, the 2008 to 2009, and, and how it was the last question in the press conference. And he said, you know, the only thing in common was that I'm the loser in both. And Matt was like, he really wanted to yell out. Um, but it's okay, Roger. In 2008, you went on, after that loss, you went on to win the U.S. Open. So he was like, oh, I wanted to say it, but, <laughs> you know, he couldn't. And I'm like, oh, I, will, I hope that someone in his camp, you know, reminds him of that. <laughs> Just to give us a little bit of hope, you know. Well, this is Tennis Pal Chronicles <laughs> for our Wimbledon recap. I don't know if that's helpful to anyone, but... Thanks for allowing us to just be cathartic and talk about our feelings and how it felt to go through this kind of monumental match. And I have to say that the winner is anyone who loves tennis because because it was such an epic match. It went, you know, on the news. It was everywhere. People were talking about it. Even my friends who I had dinner with later that night were talking about tennis and they were talking about what an epic match it was. And actually one of my friends who doesn't care about tennis at all, was really impressed that Djokovic and Federer talked so kind and respectful of each other in their press conferences. And I thought that was a really great statement to show that tennis is a great sport. It is, especially since they don't really 
they're not having a love affair, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no love lost. Like you know, if that was Roger and Rafa in the final, and they after that match, they're hugging, huge hug, and their yeah. arms around each other, and yeah. they're consoling each other or whatever. Um, so there's none of that going on, but there's obviously huge respect, and they're they're two great ambassadors and sportsmen for the game. So of course they acted right. Thankfully. Well, there's so much we didn't cover at Wimbledon, but uh, these were the personal points for us to be able to talk about. So thanks so much for listening to the Tennis Pal Chronicles. I hope you enjoyed it. And we want to send a huge shout out to Tennis Pal. And thank you so much for supporting this podcast and allowing us to share our passion, share our depression, <laughs> share our obsession. Yes, I wonder how what uh, Holly thinks... Um well, you know, She's Holly's a, a huge Federer Roger. fan. Yeah. So I'm sure she was really disappointed. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk to her and see how she feels. Maybe yes. I, I should message her on the uh, Tennis Pal app because she is the concierge there. There we go. So you can just say we could send condolences. Condolences. <laughs> condolences to the concierge. Which is just a great reminder to download the Tennis Pal app for your iPhone or Android and uh, find tennis players in your area to play with because this is the greatest game that ever existed. It is. I'm so grateful to be a part of this podcast and and to play tennis in my life. And uh, this is the greatest era of tennis ever. So congratulations, Novak Djokovic, for winning Wimbledon and for Roger being an incredible runner-up. Yes, and Hollett for... Taking out Serena. <laughs> Good job, Simona. She she played incredible. I mean, it yeah. was a clean, happy win for her, and I think everyone was happy about that. She played through the whole match the way Djokovic played in tie breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like what was it like? Three was it three? I think three unforced errors in the entire match. Three unforced errors. Freaking ridiculous. Yeah. Excuse my French. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. I mean, I have three unforced errors. Her game. Actually, every time I hit a ball, it's like three unforced <laughs> errors. Like, somehow I can create three unforced errors just off of one and hit. One point. That's yeah. how good nice. I am. <laughs> you guys, Phillips being really humble, he does not hit that many unforced <laughs> errors. He's good. I hit four. <laughs> He's good. <laughs> Even more. Valerie, thanks for your time. It was great spending time and catching up. And uh, hopefully, we should watch one of these slams together and record it live and have us crying and going crazy. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be fun? We could do like a live YouTube commentary. Yeah, with all, get with all your for rights. pets That'd be great. and stuff. <laughs> the dogs barking in the background. My, uh, my friend uh, in England, actually, she was saying that her cat like was consoling her and she was like, I wonder Aww. if she knows. Well, we want to hear from you, so if you have a, a Wimbledon story that you would love to share, we want to hear from you, so send us an email. You can send it to pk at tennispal.com, and uh, we want to hear about your ideas of the podcast, if you have suggestions. And also, I've been thinking a lot about just releasing fan favorite reports as they come in instead of putting them all together. So hopefully we'll have a little bit more content more regularly for you, and hope you enjoy it. But send us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about the podcast. Yes. Thanks, Philip. May all your serves be, be aces. aces.